In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. I'd like you to start today by recalling what the federal government did as soon as the scale of this pandemic and its impact on the economy became clear. At light speed, they found a way to get money every month to people who needed it to eat, to keep a roof over their heads, to keep their family safe. Today's episode is not here to comment on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit one way or the other, except to say that it proves that what we are about to discuss can be done quickly if the people with power want it to happen. Our story today, though, is about 50 people. Well, it's actually about just over 100 people, but it's 50 of them, specifically, that we're really interested in. These people were all recently homeless in British Columbia. They were on the streets, in the shelter system, they were food insecure, and they signed on to an initiative called the New Leaf Project, And 50 of these people received a one-time lump sum cash payment. And then the project watched. What happened to those people? And what happened to the people who got nothing over the course of a year? So free money, thousands of dollars each, given out all at once to people living on the streets with absolutely no strings attached. What do you think happened next? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Jiang Zhao is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia and also the research lead on the New Leaf Project. Hello, Dr. Zhao. Hello. Can you start by just telling me about the idea for the New Leaf Project? Where did it come from? Yeah, so... We have a raging homelessness crisis in Canada and the U.S. This motivated our initial idea. Uh, We want to do something to reduce, you know, the number of people who experience homelessness in Canada. Um, That was the founding idea of the nonprofit organization called the New Leaf Project. Now we formally launched the charity called Foundations for Social Change. Uh, This is co-founded by Claire Williams and Franz Chuangyi. Um, So they founded the organization back in 2015. I first talked to Claire uh, based on a referral from our common friend. And Claire basically said, we want to use direct cash transfers to reduce homelessness. I've been working on poverty reduction for for a while, and I'm I'm a psychologist. I said, yes, let's do this. This this has to be done. Um, So that's how we joined forces. um, And I've been serving as the research lead on this project. Um, and we, we jointly proposed uh, to use a one-time unconditional cash transfer of $7,500 to reduce homelessness in Vancouver. So that's how the project started. 
Can you explain in a little bit more detail um, exactly how it worked? Uh, so $7,500 in cash, um, how many people, how did you control it? Uh, how did you follow them and analyze what was going on with the money, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, the amount. So I have a lot of questions about why 7500 um, well, That took us many, many months of debate and discussion and brainstorming. So this amount is the annual welfare assistance in British Columbia back in 2016 when we were designing the project. And what this means is that what, when somebody enters homelessness, what the government and support services should do is should, you know, it should give people this one-time cash transfer to help them get out of homelessness and prevent them from being further entrenched in that experience. Um, so that's the implication for this amount. And that's, that's the amount that we finally settled on. Now, this is purely because of the policy implications. There's no magic number. There's no minimum number. I don't know what the minimum threshold should be. It should be 2,000, 5,000, or should, should there be a maximum number, like 20,000? There's no answer to that. Um, we need to, we need to you know, t- basically pilot the approach with different amounts in the future, but that's a different question. We decided on 7,500 for you know, in policy implications. And the way we dispersed this cash uh, was through Van City. So Van City, uh, which is a credit union in Vancouver, they gave uh, free checking accounts to all of our participants in this project. So we set up a bank account, uh, a checking account for, for participants. And then we e-transferred this cash to their checking account. And we followed uh, these participants over time. So in terms of the specific number, we recruited 115 participants in total. That's the total number of participants in our project. Uh, 50 of them were randomly assigned to the cash group. So each of these 50 individuals received the $7,500. 65 participants, on the other hand, were randomly assigned to the control condition. So they did not receive the cash transfer. So, so that's, that's the setup of our study. And we followed every participant in both groups over one year on um, 16 different life outcomes. What kind of life outcomes did you follow and how did you track that? We tracked um, uh, housing stability, uh, income, employment, savings, spending, food security, uh, health, that includes physical health and mental health, and psychological well-being. Um, That includes cognitive function and happiness and life satisfaction and social connections. So these are the key indicators that we tracked for one year for both groups. Did you do it through um, a series of interviews? I assume you also uh, kept tabs on the accounts that you gave them. But uh, how did you how do you you find out, you know, how uh, their social connection, for instance, is doing? Yeah, so we uh, followed each participant at one month, three months, six months, nine months and 12 months after the cash transfer. Our interviewers would, would meet with each participant. Uh, this, this is obviously before COVID, um, right. you know, in person, and we will conduct uh, an in-person interview where they answer a bunch of questions um, with us. So given that you've um, worked in this area previous to this for, for quite some time, what did you expect to find uh, when you began the process? Yeah, so our expectations were very low because there's no such study done in the past. All we had to work with was uh, cash transfer studies in developing countries, and there, there's a huge body of literature on that. 
we made some predictions of the outcomes. So we, we thought that um, the cash reserves will improve their psychological well-being, will improve their, improve their food security. Uh, that was based on the findings in the developing countries. That was our expectations going in. Um, but as we saw, the results were completely well beyond my, uh, our expectations. Give me a sense of what they, what they turned out to be. Yeah, so we had a couple of big surprises in our results, and these are really good surprises. So the first one is housing. In one month after the cash transfer, the recipients were able to move into stable housing. That means apartments, their own apartments. That's fast. In one month, they were able to move into stable housing. Uh, Whereas the control participants, by that I mean people who did not get the cash, they eventually moved into stable housing at nine months. And that's just the the progress of housing uh, progression in, in, in Vancouver. So what this meant was, you know, on average, a cash recipient was able to reduce their days of homelessness uh, by three months. That's 90 days of being on the street. Uh, I think that's, you know, that, that kind of reduction in homelessness was, was enormous. On average, I think in our total cash uh, group, participants spent something like 4,000 fewer days being on the street. Wow. That's a lot of days uh, on the street where you could be attacked, where you could be assaulted, your stuff can be stolen, there could be a lot of traumas. This is like the, our kind of number one positive uh, surprise. Um, and as a result of being in a shelter for less or being into, moving into stable housing uh, faster, this also saved the government, um, you know, on average, $8,000 cash. Uh, just just by reduced reliance on shelter, hmm. on the shelter system. So uh, the specific savings was eighty one hundred dollars per person per year, and this this already offset the um, cash transfer, which is seventy five hundred dollars. What other kinds of factors did you find in terms of um, you know all the quality of life stuff that you were tracking? I assume that it's all positively impacted by just not being on the street. Yeah, so the second surprise we had was uh, savings. We found that the cash recipients were able to retain $1,000 more savings over one year than people in the control condition. So this is really good to see because this meant that recipients did not spend the cash at once. Uh, They were actually able to retain the savings or the, the amount in their bank account over time and retain more savings over time. So this is really, you know, one, really positive. And two, it defies our common assumption or our stereotype of how people in poverty and homelessness manage their money. Right? We, we assume that if they come into cash, then they're going to squander it. They're going to yeah. spend it on things that are not necessary. So related to savings, we track spending. And that's that's another that's like another category of measures or outcomes. Yeah, that was going to be my next question: is you must have you must have a pretty detailed account of where that money went. Absolutely. So we tracked monthly spending. We found that the cash participants spend more money on rent. Um, they're able to feed themselves and their families, and was, as a result, they were able to re- achieve food security at one month. They also spent more money on bills, so they were able to pay, pay their, you know, let's say, electricity bills or previous debts. And they also spend more on transit. So by that, I mean um, public transit. So buses, uh, SkyTrain in Vancouver. 
Um, some participants actually use the money to buy a used car, so such that they can drive to work and drive their kids to school. And finally, they spend more money on clothing, both for themselves and for their kids. An important uh, spending category is temptation goods. So these include alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes. What we found was cash recipients actually reduced their spending on alcohol and drugs by 39% over one year. That's, again, incredible. Um, this is direct, in direct contradiction to our stereotype. We actually did not see uh, any negative impact of our cash uh, intervention on their spending on alcohol and drugs. If anything, they reduced their consumption. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Would any of the participants speak uh, when you you interviewed them, presumably uh, near the end of the project, about... Um, you know, that their habits might have changed because they were conscious that they were part of this project and that their spending was being watched and that they obviously would like it to succeed because um, it's a positive outcome for them? Yeah, that's a great point. So this is something that we call Hawthorne effect in psychology, right? So your behavior changes just because you know that you're being watched or you're being monitored. That's not what really um, drove our results because people in the control condition were also being monitored. So we asked, essentially, we asked people the same questions in both groups. So then they can ask, well, maybe the cash participants are motivated to, to give you better answers. Uh, we have three evidence, three arguments to say this is not the case. One, we already gave them the cash. We're not going to give them the cash again. We are simply tracking them over time. So in other words, there's no, not much motivation on the participants, on the recipient side, to, to keep behaving or giving us good responses. What, what's their motivation, right? Um, so there's no actually you know, large financial incentives down the line. Two is uh, we're able to verify their self-reports on spending with their um, bank statements. So for some participants, we actually got their bank statements with their consent. And based on our checking, uh, the, their self-reports were largely consistent with the bank account statements. So we, 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 we didn't see any kind of dishonest reporting from the participant side. And the final argument that we have was, uh, it's not that the cash recipients said, I, I spent zero dollars on alcohol and drugs. They were actually being you know, honest because their reporting on these expenses fluctuated over time. Right, so at baseline in one month, they reported about $150 per month expense on alcohol and drugs and cigarettes. At three months, there was like a slight bump to $160. And then in six months, they went back down to $140. This gave us more confidence that they were actually telling us, us the truth. It's not like I told you at baseline. So at baseline is before the cash intervention, before even they were aware they're going to get the cash transfer. A baseline, they said I spent about $150 per month on alcohol and drugs and cigarettes. And that was stable. And then at 12 months, this amount went back uh, down to $100 per month. So for these reasons, we don't think that you know, participants are being dishonest. They're actually being quite truthful to us. So these are um, 
pretty incredible results then, all things considered. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about the reaction to them and how they can or can't uh, shape policy. So first of all, there's an emotional aspect, I think, and, and maybe you can address this better than me, uh, given your background, but, but there's an emotional aspect that we certainly hear every time we talk about uh, universal basic income or, you know, just giving money to people. And how was your study received uh, through that lens? And, you know, how can you counter that? Because um, there is a notion that, you know, these folks didn't earn it. They didn't go get a job and and earn a paycheck or pick themselves off the ground and dust themselves off, et cetera. And that resistance is certainly pretty strong in the feedback that we've gotten when we've talked about this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's been many, many comments following the media exposure of our project. I think, you know, all the hesitations around UBI and cash transfers come from a deep sense of distrust, um, distrust of people living in poverty, people living in homelessness. There's a pervasive sense that, you know, they're not going to be able to manage the money well. Why are you giving them this large lump sum of cash? You, they're going to waste it. That would be a complete waste of funds. They're probably going to you know, overdose and, and spend it irresponsibly. I think those narratives are largely incorrect, and these assumptions we hold of people living in poverty and homelessness are incorrect, and we should correct those assumptions. Obviously, based on our spending data, um, these these assumptions are are false. That's not how people spend the cash. So that was probably the biggest surprise to people: is wow, they 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 were able to save a thousand dollars more over one year. That's incredible, you know. Um, and their spending on alcohol and drugs and cigarettes dec- declined by 39% over one year. So these are kind of results that are kind of mind-blowing to the public. And I'm very happy that that, that that really blew people's mind. For those who still expressed hesitation or skepticism, uh, I have no idea how to convince them other than telling them, just, you know, telling them stories of our, of our participants. Can you give me an example of just one of the stories that you would tell? Just a quick one. Oh, yeah. So... Um, we had a participant who ended up in a shelter because uh, they were fleeing from domestic violence and they had a young child. They were getting really desperate um, at the time when we met them. They were you know, extremely worried about their status in the shelter, whether they would be evicted again, how they were able to feed their kids and, and themselves. So once we gave this participant the cash transfer, they were able to get into housing right away. They were able to find daycare for, for their kid. Uh, they also bought a used car so they can continue to go to work. Uh, this participant actually had, you know, had, had, had some part-time job, which is great. This person was able to put their life back together. And they were extremely grateful for this cash transfer. This is just one of our participants. The resistance, the, sorry, the resilience in these participants was enormous. I was I was completely blown away by the speed with, with, with which they're able to bounce back. Well, I think that's, um, you know, it's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you. It's why uh, the study's gotten so much media attention, because uh, 
I think the results are are really profound. And that's what I want to ask you about as we finish here is, you know, if you've got the individual stories, uh, like the one you just told me, um, if you've got the data that, uh, and you mentioned earlier that y- you actually saved money based on how much uh, the, it would have cost to keep these folks in the shelters, uh, and you have data of what they spent it on and, you know, how their outcomes were improved, how do you bundle all that up and and overcome the resistance to making this kind of stuff a policy? Because that's a nut that never seems to get cracked. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if I can wave a magic wand, I would wish public policy to be based on scientific evidence. Um, that would be my number one wish. And based on our data, which is scientific evidence, policy should be changed to raise the floor for people entering homelessness. This is the number one implication for policy. I need to um, also mention that our participants are, you know, um, had to, they had to pass a series of screening criteria. So one of our criteria was uh, homeless for less than two years and uh, low to moderate levels of substance use and alcohol use and psychiatric symptoms. That collectively would capture about half of the uh, homeless population. So our recommendations for policy would be you know, for people who just ended up in homelessness, in shelters, in, in emergency support uh, centers, who would pass these criteria, the government should distribute this one-time cash transfer that's equivalent to the annual uh, income assistance to help them get out of homelessness. So, yeah, so we hope that um, our study would, was, would start the conversation on policy change. I know it would it's going to be a long road. Um, the one hesitation that I've already heard from, you know, policymakers is, well, you you have a you have a pretty small sample. You have 115 participants. That's that's a fraction compared to what we're dealing with. So we need a bigger evidence base, and that's what we're doing with the expansion project. We're we're now actively. Uh, expanding this trial, this uh, approach in multiple cities in Canada. Um, We're actually fundraising for this expansion project. We want to bring this project to Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and Halifax and other cities uh, to replicate the the same approach. With that, I think we're we're, we're aiming for something like 4,000 individuals um, over five years. We want to test to see whether this same approach will work at a national level. Well, it's fascinating, and uh, the results are amazing, so I wish you luck uh, with the expansion. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jiang Zhao, Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia and Research Lead at the New Leaf Project. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, Email us at thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. And of course, find us in your favorite podcast player. You pick. We're there. I promise. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. 
It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.